0: The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit BroadwayChurch.com. Well, welcome to week five of our Acts series. Um, as we recall, the book of Acts begins with that transition as Jesus hands off his mission and ministry to the apostles who are then going to pull together. Uh, A group of disciples called the church that are going to continue Jesus' ministry in the world. So uh, in the book of Acts, Jesus ascends and goes to be with his father, but that does not mean that his ministry is over. It's just changing. And so Jesus is still alive. He is resurrected and ascended to be at the right hand of God. And he has entrusted the apostles to carry on his mission and ministry. So the mission and ministry that Luke talks about uh, concerning Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, it's ongoing. That's the whole point of the second part of what he's written in the book of Acts. And so uh, we got into Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised the spirit that had empowered his ministry is now going to empower the ministry of the apostles and the early church. Jesus kind of predicts that that is coming and he gives the apostles instructions to wait for this. And then of course in Acts chapter two, um, the Holy Spirit is poured out and they become um, uh, Jesus' witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we had that summary paragraph Uh, that talked about what was going on at the spirit-filled community, this new spirit-filled community called the church. And that became the platform on which we launched into, a couple of weeks ago, this discussion of the healing of the lame man, which was one of the wonders that was taking place that had everybody in awe. And so tonight we're going to pick up the back half of episode one uh, of this story of the early church in Jerusalem. And we're going to kind of finish up by following through. Well, what happened next? You know, the lame man is healed in a remarkable kind of way. He's 40 years old. He's been lame since birth. People have been hauling him out to the temple. And remember, here's uh, the temple mount, just to kind of uh, give you a sense of what's going on here, because a lot of what we're talking about in the next couple of weeks takes place at the temple. Uh, This is Jerusalem. This is the temple uh, environs. Here's the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olives is just over here. And this is north. That's what this is. This isn't a little snake. This is north. This is an N. Okay. And uh, so that makes this the east side of the temple. And so we talked last week about the fact that this was the court of the women and uh, only jewish people could come into the temple proper but this was called the court of the gentiles where anyone could come on temple mount Uh, but if you had to be uh, jewish to come into the temple uh, precincts proper and then uh, this was the um, court of israel the court of men so women could come this far men could come this far The priests, this was the court of the priests, they could come this far into the temple, and here's the door of the temple. And then this was the Holy of Holies, and this was the holy place. And in the Holy of Holies, where the ark was, only the priest could go in once a year to give atonement for all of the people. And so, kinda as you get closer and closer to that place where uh, God's presence dwells in the Old Testament system in the Holy of Holies, um, it's more restrictive in who has access to it. Now, this person that we talked about last week, this lame man who was healed, was probably healed somewhere out here. He was outside what was called the gate called Beautiful, and it's debatable which gate in Jerusalem this was about, but probably it was this entrance to the court of women, this entrance to the temple precincts proper. He um, was in the court of the Gentiles. And, uh, and after he is healed, they kind of go and have a big discussion on what is called Solomon's Colonnade, which runs along the east side of uh, the temple uh, grounds. And it's kind of a a many-columned, sort of covered area where the early church used to gather for the first several um, months and years of their existence. And so uh, a lot of what you see taking place happens here in Solomon's Colonnade, this kind of east side of the temple, just inside the eastern gate. So that kind of just gives you some idea of where is this action taking place? What's going on? And uh, this will give you a little better idea of how to kind of orient yourself in this story. So once the lame man is healed, much to everybody's surprise and amazement, uh, people come running from all over the temple precincts to find out what in the world has just happened. This has become a story and everybody wants to get in on it. Uh, It's it's something that nobody wants to miss. And as the crowd gathers, Peter says, I've got an opportunity here now to um, preach the message of the kingdom. I have an opportunity to present Jesus Christ as God's servant and Messiah, the fulfillment of everything these Jewish people had been looking for all along. And so Peter in chapter three, in his first great sermon, that gathers around the healing of the lame man, he takes the opportunity to help them understand that receiving the Abrahamic blessing uh, that was promised in the Old Testament really is connected to letting Jesus being the Lord of their lives and letting him uh, turn them from their wicked ways. And so, Peter says, folks, you need to be saved. Yes, you're Jewish. Yes, you're a part of the Jewish community. Yes, you're a part of God's chosen people. But you need salvation. And salvation includes forgiveness, blessing, and righteousness. God wanted their lifestyle to be different from the rest of the world around them. I've included on your handout tonight a quote from N.T. Wright, uh, an Anglican bishop from Britain. And he says something in this paragraph that I think is important for us to understand. Not only to get a handle on what's going on here in the book of Acts, but also to understand how we fit into the frame here in 2019, how we also play a role in what Jesus got started in sending the Holy Spirit to empower the early church to be his witnesses in the world. We also have a place in that calling of God to be witnesses in our world. And this is what N.T. Wright says, you can kind of follow along, feel free to underline words or circle uh, phrases that are important to you. When God saves people in this life, he says, by working through his spirit to bring them faith and by leading them to follow Jesus in discipleship, prayer, holiness, and hope and love, such people are designed, he says this isn't too strong a world, they're designed to be a sign and a foretaste of what God wants to do for the entire cosmos. This is just the beginning of the restoration that is going to affect the entire creation when Jesus comes again. And what's more, such people are not just to be a sign and a foretaste of that ultimate salvation someday, they are to be a part of the means by which God makes this happen, both in the present and in the future. And so we are kind of the first fruits of what God is doing. He's going to be restoring his creation. It begins with men and women coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord, coming to follow him and looking to him for salvation. We know from the Abrahamic blessing that God promised Abraham that through his descendants, the entire world would be blessed, all peoples, everywhere. And Peter wants his Jewish listeners to hear the fact that in Jesus, what Abraham was promised is now coming to pass. And so, Peter was inviting the Jews into the mission of God, uh, not to be the first to carry the message, I mean, to be the very first to carry the message of the kingdom of God. They wouldn't be the only ones, but they were the first ones uh, to whom the Holy Spirit came. But in order to pass on the message of that blessing, they had to experience it for themselves. And so, God was preparing the Jews for this. And so, the lame man is healed, much to everybody's amazement. The people that gathered, Peter gets an opportunity to start preaching the gospel of the kingdom, to take those first steps in making known that Jesus is the risen Messiah that the people of Israel have been looking for forever. He has now arrived and there is life and salvation in his name. And, uh, and so, as they come to the end of that passage, um, you know, they're having a significant impact on the people of Jerusalem who have gathered to hear what is going on. However, they're not the only people who take note of the miracle. There's going to be another group of people I'm going to introduce you tonight who also took note, and they weren't quite as impressed by the miracle or by what Peter has to say. And so here's the big idea of what we're going to be talking about for the bounce of this evening. The proclamation, Peter's proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah and Savior, leads to their arrest by the political and religious authorities, to their imprisonment overnight, and to interrogation of their ministry. And that actually turns out, in an interesting kind of way, to be an opportunity for them to explain to the rulers of the Jewish people um, the identity and significant as Jesus of the Messiah. So that's the big picture of what's going to take place. How it unfolds is really quite fascinating, and so let's kind of move on on the journey. So chapter 4 picks up the second half of this first episode um, and features two historical narratives that pick up the aftermath of the healing of the lame man that we learned about last week. So let's dig in. Uh, Chapter four, verse one, if you have a Bible, follow along with me. Uh, I've also included a Bible on the table in front of you. If you don't have one of your own, feel free to follow me along there. So here's how chapter four begins. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Okay, so we had 120 in the upper room. We had 3,000 that responded to Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. And now we have this number of of men, almost 5,000, and I'll come back to that number in just a moment, why it's important, um, that come to faith as a result of what's going to take place next. So as evening is setting in, Peter and John are still preaching, right? Um, The lame man was healed about three o'clock in the afternoon. It's moving on towards evening. They've been talking to the crowd all of that time. Uh, The message that we read in Acts chapter three doesn't take three hours to preach, but you can tell because they're still speaking to the people in the temple that the The entire discussion took a lot longer than that. Luke has just given us, you know, the the essence, okay? The center of what it was that Peter had to share with them. And um, they're in the temple, and a group of Jewish leaders suddenly shows up greatly annoyed. That's what goes in the first blank. They're agitated. And we read from Luke's account that this group included three different kinds of people. First of all, there was the priests. And there were the people who had uh, responsibility for the upkeep of everything that took place on the temple grounds. Then there was the captain of the temple guard because you needed kind of a temple police when you had restrictions on who could go where when. they had sort of a temple guard that made sure that the Gentiles didn't go into the Jewish area, that the women didn't go into the men's area, like they had a guard that made sure that everything was done properly in order. And so the captain of the temple guard, you know, the chief constable, if you will, uh, shows up with this group of people. And then there's a group of people called the Sadducees, okay, and that goes in that next blank. And Sadducees is spelled S-A-D-D-U-C-E-E-S. Sadducees. Now, if you were a part of Pastor Darren's uh, teaching on the book of Mark, the Sadducees are not unfamiliar to you, but for the sake of those of you that are not familiar with who they were, let me explain. The Sadducees were a group of religious Jews who did not accept the traditions of the Pharisees. So they were not sort of bosom buddies. The Sadducees and the Pharisees had all kinds of debates about theological and practical matters. They believed that everything should be judged by the first five books of the Old Testament. And they felt that everything else needed to be subject to that. So they didn't give as much weight to the writings and the prophets. And they absolutely denied the resurrection. Okay. They believed that the messianic age had already dawned. And so this group of people who are sort of really in charge of um, the political and social life of, of the Jews in Jerusalem at this particular time, um, the high priest, the captain of the guard, are probably Sadducees, these people became leaders... Uh, politically, during the Maccabean, that short period where the Maccabees ruled Jerusalem. After they rebelled against Rome, of course, they were eventually put down. But in an attempt to kind of keep the peace, the Romans allowed the Sadducees to become essentially, um, you know, the rulers of Jerusalem. They gave them a certain amount of room to kind of exercise their faith and religion, just to kind of make sure that they didn't create another Maccabean uprising. And so that was kind of their concession to keep the peace, the Pax Romana. Um, They stressed, of course, because they were in power by the good graces of the Romans, they uh, stressed cooperation with Rome and the maintenance of the status quo. They just didn't want anybody upsetting uh, the system. They didn't want anybody that would draw the wrath of Rome down upon them. They kind of wanted just to preserve their little space and their safety. Now, this incident marks the early opposition that arises from the Jewish Jerusalem leadership. The last thing the Sadducees were interested in was a popular departure from um, accepted belief and practice. And um, they were really antagonistic to anybody that possibly threatened uh, the peace that they were experiencing in Jerusalem. They didn't want to ruin the relationship with the Romans. And so uh, anybody who came up that sort of threatened all of that, they took umbrage to and got upset with. Now, there are three things that tick them off, okay? Number one, the followers of Jesus, Peter and John, they're teaching the people in the temple without proper authorization. So right away, they're on the wrong side. That's what goes in the blank. Number two... Peter is proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. That's what goes in the next blank. And of course, the Sadducees are absolutely dead set against this whole business of any notion of the resurrection because if Jesus rose from the dead, that means that, you know, that might be available to all people. That was just something they did not adhere to. In fact, later on, Paul, as we get further on into um, the book of Acts, when he is uh, in jeopardy, he kind of starts a small riot by saying you know I'm here and there were Pharisees and Sadducees in that particular group he says I'm here for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus well of course instead of kind of getting upset with with Paul the Sadducees and the Pharisees started going at it because the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees didn't and that became an opportunity for Paul to kind of um, you know escape from that particular situation so um so they're preaching the resurrection of the dead the sadducees absolutely dead set against that doctrine and then thirdly peter and john are teaching in the name of jesus proclaiming him to be the messiah who the rulers had engineered his execution so keep in mind as we kind of move through this we're going to find out when we start to hear the names of the people are involved that the same people that put Jesus to a phony trial and arranged for him to be crucified. It's the same group that Peter and John are having to face. And so if they're right, if Peter and John are right, then the leadership have made a huge, huge mistake. And that's the very last thing that they want to admit and uh they're also bugged by the fact that a crowd had gathered on their turf and they're apoplectic that peter and john were proclaiming the resurrection of jesus the heart of the gospel message um they feared the apostles challenge to the status quo it was already evening so they couldn't do anything about it that night so the best thing they could think of is let's just arrest them we'll throw them in jail for the night we'll deal with this whole matter in the morning we can we can gather together something of a tribunal or a council to kind of deal with what is going on here. Now, we know from this particular passage, these first four verses, that the Sadducees had some reasons to be concerned. Note here that despite the developments uh, of opposition, many believed as the result of the message. That's what Luke tells us. Uh, he says that the early Christian community swelled to about 5,000 men. That's what goes in the blank. Which implies that there were women and children there, too. And it's not unusual. um, In the scriptures, sometimes, when they talk about, you know, they say how many men were there, but they don't say how many people were there. And in this case, uh, there are some people that believe that the total number of believers came to uh, 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 amount to about 5,000, which would be significant in and of itself. But I think that more likely, the fact that Luke says that there are 5,000 men implies that women and children are also a part of this crowd. So it's probably a much larger crowd than that, probably 10,000 plus um, that are now believing in Jesus as the Messiah and becoming a part of his New Testament community. And so the church was mushrooming in size, and this was starting to panic the Jewish leadership just a little bit. Uh, They were starting to encroach on their turf, they were preaching doctrine they didn't agree with, people were kind of attracted by what it was they had to say, Uh, the movement was growing, they felt they had a crisis on their hands. And so in verse 5, we go into this kind of three-part description of how they deal with Peter and John. First of all, they give them a hearing. So legally, they're obligated to give them uh, a fair hearing. And then um, they kind of, when they give them a hearing, they um, uh, give them a warning uh, about what to do with uh, um, this doctrine that they are teaching, what the Jewish leadership would like to have them to do. So they've arrested them. The next day, they get a hearing. So in verse 5, we kind of pick up the account. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, all of whom were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, kind of think, you know, kind of a big semicircle, puts them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or name did you just do this, this healing of the lame man? It kind of reminds me of, has anybody been watching the Mueller testimony before Congress recently? You know, like, here's Mueller sitting at a table by himself, and here are all these people sitting up on the dais all around him, you know, peppering with questions. You sort of get that notion is going on. You know, there's kind of a big power play going on in this particular situation. And so the next day, all of these major players gathered together, and they represent, uh, again, uh, Darren introduced this to this in the Mark series, they made up what was called the Sanhedrin. H, uh, S-A-N-H-E-D-R-I-N, the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin uh, was a group of 71 men consisting of the high priest, consisting of the high priest, and 70 other elders and rulers, scribes and Pharisees. Uh, Pharisees, not too many of them were involved. It was basically scribes, teachers of the law, uh, and the priests, And this really was the Supreme Court of Israel at the time. Rome had given them power to sort of rule on all the religious and social matters, other than on capital offenses. They couldn't put anybody to death. But they could uh, have some authority in anything to do with the temple and Jerusalem and kind of the leadership of the Jewish people. So to kind of keep the peace, the Romans gave them a little bit of authority in order to run the affairs of Israel at the time the sanhedrin was the senate and the supreme court of the nation which had jurisdiction the sanhedrin consisted of these 70 people and it probably wasn't all 71 that gathered but it was a representative number if you remember when they convicted jesus uh, of blasphemy they kind of were forced by jesus to kind of do something in a hurry and so they called quickly a meeting you sort of get the sense that this is going on here again Um, They're preaching in the temple, Um, they're causing a disturbance, they have to do something, they put them in prison at night, and they quickly gather at least a representative number of the Sanhedrin to kind of deal with this legal issue that has been created. Uh, They call this emergency meeting to deal with the threat posed by the heresy, so-called, of Peter and John, and the growing influence that the church was having in the city. Uh, The Sanhedrin, really, what they wanted to do is they just wanted to shut this whole show down. That was really what their intent was. And so they were going to pull out their power. They were going to make a power play sort of intimidate these people and kind of cow them into silence. And so they make John stand uh, and Peter stand in the midst of the assembled court, which is the same group that convicted Jesus. They want to know, what are you teaching? By what power is this healing taking place? Now, really, when it came right down to it, in their way of thinking, there was only two possibilities. It was either the power of God or it was the power of the devil. There really was only two options. Um, the Sanhedrin uh, saw the supernatural events had taken place. The fact that the lame man was healed was irrefutable. It was an indisputable fact that everybody in the city now was aware of. So they couldn't ignore that particular fact, but they wanted to kind of get Peter and John to sort of, you know, explain Under what authority are they actually doing what it is that they're doing? And at the same time, there's a certain amount of disrespect taking place here, because the Sanhedrin would have seen Peter and John as kind of, as it says in the text, sort of unschooled ordinary men. It doesn't mean they didn't know anything about the Bible. It just means they weren't trained in the rabbinical schools. They didn't have any of their credentials. They didn't have the right degrees, okay? These were sort of just, you know, fishermen from Galilee, that sort of upstart showing up, kind of making out like they know something, that they've got something to say and something to do. And so they kind of lay on the intimidation in order to shut them down. Verse 8 says, here's Peter's reaction. He says, then Peter Well, if they were expecting Peter to move to silence, they were sadly mistaken. Peter has an answer to the question that they're asking. And so Peter, filled anew with the Holy Spirit and sensing God's presence, is not frightened. That's what goes in the blank. He probably remembered Jesus' promise that the Spirit would provide the words when the words would be needed to defend the Gospel. And it's right here that I kind of want us to take a little bit of a break. There are two passages of scripture from the Gospel of Luke that I've kind of put in your outline, Luke 12, 11 to 12, and Luke 21, 12 to 15. And um, Jesus has some important words to share in both of these texts that um, help the disciples in the middle of this crisis, but also help us when we're facing antagonism or opposition. And so what I want you to do through the first few moments is, as a group, just read those two passages, Luke 12, 11 to 12, and then Luke 21, 12 to 15, and ask yourself this question. How would these words of Jesus have helped Peter and John in this moment? And how would these words of Jesus help you in a moment where you were feeling some opposition or antagonism because of your faith in Jesus Christ. So let's take uh, five minutes, maybe a little bit longer, to kind of just look at those passages and kind of talk about how would these words of Jesus have equipped uh, Peter and John in this particular situation. So I hope you had fun in your groups talking over this issue Um, and just kind of remembering that Jesus predicted that as we're faithful to the message of the kingdom, um, that sometimes there's going to be pushback. Well, Peter doesn't panic in this particular moment, as you've seen. Uh, he addresses the leadership with a two-part answer. Number one, he says, listen, this miracle was like a good deed, and who here wants to argue that good deeds should be punished? That's the first part of his argument. Okay, And then the second part of his argument goes something like this. He just simply says, listen... It is in the name of Jesus, this same Jesus, this Messiah, this one who you delivered over to be crucified, that Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, it's in His name, with His power and His authority that uh, this man stands before you healed. It is the risen Christ, that is account is, that is responsible for the healing that you now see. Uh, exhibited in this man. And so in this moment, Luke credits the Holy Spirit for enlarging Peter's ability to speak. And he gives Peter the power to courageously witness the Greek verb tense here that is, you know, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the, The verb tense there sort of denotes a special inspiration to meet the needs of the moment. That's kind of how the language goes. So this isn't the Holy Spirit indwelling in him that's rising up. This is sort of like a special endowment of the Holy Spirit to meet the need of this particular moment. I love what somebody called this, and it goes in the blank. It is an outburst of spiritual power. And uh, I just thought that was a wonderful way to think about it. In the moment when Peter most desperately needed it, the Holy Spirit gives him a surge, an outburst of uh, spiritual power that allows him to speak in a dignified and calm and thoughtful and an intelligent way to the people who are opposing him. And so he describes their action as a good deed that should uh, be cause for gratitude, not interrogation. And he challenges um, the uh, authorities to recognize that you know, Jesus is the healer here. Now, Peter addresses the gathered leadership of Israel. It is by the power of the Messiah that the man has been healed. And as he carries on his argument, it has three points. And here's what goes in those next few blanks. Jesus is the Messiah, Israel's Savior, who has come to restore the nation and bring salvation. I want to talk about salvation in just a moment. Because salvation is a much larger term than we often think about it scripturally. Let me come back to that. Secondly, the second part of his argument, Peter argues that the Jewish leaders were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. It's interesting, though, at the same time, before he's finished this message, he's also going to preach the good news of salvation and the forgiveness of sins to this very same group because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So he accuses them of being responsible, but he also offers him hope, just kind of like he does with the first crowd that we looked at in chapter 2. And then third part of his argument is Jesus has been raised from the dead by God. He's alive, which goes in the blank. He's alive and has the power to heal the lame man. Now think about this for a second. Here is the group that convicted Jesus, that brought him up on false charges, that finally came up with a charge that they could stick, that finally convinced the Roman authorities to crucify Jesus as a danger to the state. This Jesus who they felt they had finally handled and dealt with, all of a sudden, here comes a man saying, oh no, this Jesus, no, you're not done with him yet. He's alive. Jesus raised him from the dead. And those miracles that he used to do when he was with you before the crucifixion, yeah, he's still doing them. And we're here to give witness to that and we're here to be a part of extending his ministry and his mission. And so I can imagine how Caiaphas, who oversaw the trial of Jesus, is sort of thinking, what? Are you kidding me? Like, I thought we dealt with this already. But Peter is saying, no, it is the power of the risen Jesus that brings about healing. It's the power of the risen Jesus that brings about healing in our day and age. That has never changed. And so in verse 11, he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And so Peter here is actually quoting Psalm 118:22. And he wants to make that point, Pesher style, he's using that Pesher argumentation, that Jesus is the cornerstone of something new God is building. It is Jesus who they have ignored and despised and scorned and treated with contempt that is the very centerpiece of what God is doing. Now, this whole notion of a cornerstone was not unfamiliar to their audience. This whole verse keeps coming up again and again in Scripture. Jesus uses this Scripture. It comes up in other places. They go back, talking about this whole cornerstone concept. And, of course, the cornerstone would have been, like, the first and foundational stone that they would have laid in the temple. And they place it with great care because it sort of sets up everything else so that it is square in terms of architectural design. So the capstone, or the cornerstone, is the very foundational stone. They usually try to find the very best stone they can, very carefully cut to be that first one, because everything is going to take shape from that cornerstone. So it's a very significant kind of concept. And it was a familiar metaphor in Judaism. And so this is the imagery that Peter picks up here in these next few verses. Peter is saying that Jesus, is the center of what God is doing, but he's the stone that you've rejected. Uh, The Jewish leaders have dismissed Jesus, but God has made him the very capstone of something new he is building, a spiritual temple, which which he's going to be present among his people. You know, Paul will pick this up and he says, folks, you are now God's temple, you as an assembled people of God, you are now the place where God dwells, okay. And so uh, Peter is trying to lead them in the direction of this new thing that God is doing. And so he goes on here, and he says Jesus is the only Savior for all people everywhere. There's only salvation to be found in Christ. God has granted salvation through Jesus. That was his settled plan. Now, the word salvation appears here for the very first time in the book of Acts. On the one hand, uh, salvation refers to, like, Physical rescue, being saved from being imprisoned, for instance. Or it can refer to emotional and physical healing. Sometimes salvation has healing connotations in mind. But the most common meaning in the book of Acts describes spiritual salvation as that which is made possible by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And it includes all of these things, more than these things, but at least it includes these things. Forgiveness of sins, number one. The fact that you will have confidence in the coming judgment, you'll be acquitted because of what Jesus has done for you in the coming judgment. Your lives will be transformed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Um, God's people will be restored and you will experience life in this new humanity, this new community of God's people. And so salvation included a lot of depth in terms of how it's used in the Old Testament. It wasn't coming up after a service simply to pray a prayer and receive forgiveness, as important as that is. Salvation was, it was a whole new way of life. It was a comprehensive application for everything that God had done in Jesus, now available to you, now available to me, and certainly available to this first century audience. So the healing of the, 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 the uh, lame man is kind of demonstration of this. Now, the next thing they do is they issue a warning. Number one, they're absolutely astonished that Peter and John have, um, uh, you know, responded the way they have. This is not what they expected. And so in verse 13, we read this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the first reaction of the priests and elders is flabbergasted astonishment. That's what goes in the next blank. These unschooled Galileans were looking them straight in the eye and confidently and intelligently reasoning without any showing of fear. They show a mastery of the scripture reasoning and they spoke with the same kind of authority Jesus spoke with. You can kind of see the echoes, you know. They thought Jesus was done with and yet here now, you know, we're sort of seeing Jesus ministry kind of now being carried on in the lives of Peter and John. Like That's what's taking place here. They thought they had dealt with Jesus, but now his disciples were talking and acting just like him. And they thought, you know something, they are, you know, a chip off the old block, if I can say that with respect, they are the students of their rabbi Jesus. That's what's going on here. They're behaving just like he behaved. We've heard this all before. That's what they're thinking. And so the Holy Spirit provided everything they needed in the moment. They spoke honestly and forthrightly without any kind of equivocation boldness is what goes in the next blank. Boldness is a very important word in the book of Acts. You'll see it come up again and again and again. It denotes spirit-empowered courage and confidence to speak up the truth in spite of any danger or threat. So boldness is an important word. It denotes spirit-empowered courage and confidence to speak in spite of any danger or threat. Uh, And so... The next verse, verse 14, we read that seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, the leaders had nothing to say in opposition. And so when they had commanded them to leave the council, they throw Peter and John out of the room, kind of get them out of the way for a moment so that they can, you know, confer amongst themselves. Uh, They said, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You see the dilemma that the leaders are in. Okay, Um, There's something here that they have to deal with. This healing is real. The man is standing here healed. Like, we cannot refute that. What are we going to do with this group? Now, the authorities are not dummies. They're pretty politically astute and cagey. And so uh, as they chat amongst themselves, they realize they can't deny the miracle. It's too well publicly attested. And again, if they were to deny this, the people would be up in arms. And they do not want that to happen. Um, And even though this incredible sign has taken place, this is what goes in the next blank, even the miraculous needs uh, openness of heart and mind to be convincing. There's been all kinds of cases where people have experienced a real-life miracle, but they haven't been convinced that Jesus is Lord. They're not prepared to go there. They're not prepared to make room for that. And so the ruler's concerned with protecting their own turf overrules the irrefutable evidence in front of them. And what had transpired with Peter and John to them was an unwelcome echo of Jesus' own teaching and ministry. And so they couldn't live with the message. They were unhappy with the growing popular acceptance of this teaching. Uh, They couldn't do anything against them at this particular point. They're kind of stuck. And so basically, they make this decision. We are going to issue a warning. We are going to give them legal notice that they need to stop and stop right now. But in order that it be spread no further among the people, verse 17, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They just wanted to shut this down completely. And not only did they want to shut it down then, this was the first step in saying, and if you don't, there will be consequences. That's kind of implied in what's going on here. So we're telling you, we're giving you fair warning right now, shut this down. If you don't, there will be a price to pay, just saying. But Peter and John in character, answered them, well, you tell us, is it right in the sight of God to listen to you or God? You are going to have to judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so isn't it interesting, Peter and John kind of throw it back to the rulers, and they're saying, listen, you know, we all know the answer to this question, (laughs) you know, when it comes to a difference between obeying God or man, what do you choose? You guys, you tell us, and so, in a sense, they invite the leaders to be judges of themselves. <laughs> they kind of paint them into a corner there. And this response would have resonated with the members of the council who would have been impacted by association with Jesus and the resurrection and the outpouring of the spirit, those people who were sensitive to that. But the apostles basically said, folks, we have seen his ministry. We have touched him. We've been there for the miracles. We've been there for the healings. Uh, We have seen the message. We have seen people come to faith. Folks, we can't deny this. This is our experience. So I'm sorry, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You can't contain that. We would be untrue to ourselves. We'd be untrue to our Lord if we were to keep that to ourselves. And quite frankly, we're just not going to do it. And so... The apostles' firsthand experience of Jesus' friendship, and experience of the risen Lord was, this was what goes in the blank, more compelling to them than the warnings of the rulers. And uh, with the Spirit's help, they were gonna carry on with the mission that Jesus had given them. And so in verse 21, after Peter had responded, it says, and when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, they were all praising God for what had happened, And the man whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so the council does not have enough evidence at this point to prosecute Peter and John criminally. They don't want to upset the people who were obviously taken with their message and many of them were starting to be open to the message of Jesus. And so uh, they're not going to risk a riot. The warning exerted their authority and gave them the legal precedent to enable them to take more drastic action in the future. And so what do we learn from this this first section? Well, number one, we learn that the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus is a right. That's what goes in the blank. God has authorized Christ followers then and now to preach the gospel. Who gives you the authority to speak in Jesus' name? Well, God has given us that authority. He gave Peter and John the authority. He gives you and I the right to speak in his name. As a matter of fact... Uh, The proclamation of the gospel is not only a right, number two, it's a duty. If believers have encountered the risen Lord, they're kind of obliged. We're all kind of obliged to speak in his name and introduce him to other people. So not only is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus a right, it's also a duty. And Christians who witness, number three, to others, always face the possibility of opposition. That's the third blank there. Jesus informed, as you've read already tonight, that... um, his followers could likely face some pushback along the way if they are faithful to sharing this message. And he also says one other thing here, and that is, Christians who face opposition oppose governmental authorities who oppose God. When you're in that place where, as a citizen of two kingdoms, say in Canada, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God if you're a follower of Jesus, you're also a citizen of Canada. We try to be good citizens of both kingdoms, right? At least I do. You do? Okay. So we try to be good uh, citizens of both kingdoms. But when the demands of those kingdoms conflict, we have to make a choice, a courageous choice. And people who are followers of Jesus, when they have to make that choice, decide that they are going to um, regard their citizenship in the kingdom of God as more persuasive than their citizenship in the country in which they are a part. So... Um, the next thing that happened is Peter James, or Peter and John uh, run back to tell the believers who are praying what has just transpired. And we read about it in verse uh, 423. And when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Um, and so Peter and John give a full account of everything that happened, and, he, and they also tell them what this might mean in the future. They're saying, this is what they said, this is what we said, this is what they said, this is what we said, And I think they're serious, and if we're going to be faithful, we probably are going to hear from these guys again, so just saying, let's be prepared for that. And we read in the text in verse 24, when the assembled group, the assembled believers who were praying heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, that's how they get started. You know, when somebody comes and tells you the news, okay, it was interesting, they don't like what they're doing, they gave us a warning, they threatened us, and this crowd says, praise God, praise God, that's their first response, which is not the one you necessarily would have expected. It becomes clear in this passage that Peter and John are not the only disciples not intimidated by the Jewish rulers. They didn't just scare the gathered believers either, and so their response is not fear, and here's what goes in the blank, but faith praise, and prayer. That's how they respond to the news that Peter and John share with them. Not fear, but faith, praise, and prayer. And so they go back to the scriptures as their source of power and confidence in uh, prayer. And I'm gonna read through this passage. It's really a quotation from Psalm chapter two, one and two. And, And again, the believers are sort of taking what they attribute to David in the Psalms and applying it to the situation of What's going on with the Jewish rulers? And so he says, through the mouth of our father David, your servant. By the way, we don't know for sure that Psalm 2 was attested to David, but they saw David as the writer of that Psalm. About half of the Psalms are written by David. Uh, He said by the Holy Spirit. So they're saying when David said this, he didn't sort of just say it off the top of his head. The Holy Spirit inspired him what he was going to write here next. And he says, here's what he wrote. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay. Do you see what they're doing here and kind of bringing this passage from Psalms forward? Number one, they're saying that God alone is God, the creator of the universe. And what David says here, he is speaking on God's behalf. Okay. Secondly... They base their prayer on the inspired word of God, seeing in this psalm um, an explanation of what's taking place right now. Here they are, here's worldly rulers, conspiring against God's anointed, plotting against him, upset with him. You know, this is that, what what David was talking about here. This is what's happening now with the Jewish leadership. This is exactly what's going on here. The Bible kind of talked about that. David sort of predicted that this was gonna take place. And, uh, and then they get really, really specific. They say, you know, um, here's the application. We're talking about Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the leaders of Israel. They're the fulfillment of this notion of the Gentiles raging and the leadership's, um, um, you know, kind of rebelling against the Lord and against his anointed so basically he's saying what David was talking about here that's what we've just seen from the Jewish leadership this is a direct connection between those two things that's what they're doing in this particular prayer as they direct it towards God and then in verse 29 they say and now Lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness there's that word again boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so it's interesting that these saints, they don't play from deliverance, from oppression. They don't pray for judgment on their oppressors. What they pray for is that God will look at the threats of the Sanhedrin and give his servants opportunities to keep on speaking, goes in that next blank, to keep on speaking his word with great boldness. And so they ask the Lord for more miracles, not for their own sake, but here's what goes in the blank, has opportunities to preach the gospel. And secondly, has signs that goes in the next blank that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And so the hand of God reminds us that the power of God to do miracles is always God's power. He may work through people, through Peter, through John, maybe even through you or me, but the power is always God's. He is always the operative um, uh, source of miracles. And we read... That, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so God responded to their prayer physically as well as spiritually. He imparted divine enablement. That's what goes in the blank. He filled them anew with the Holy Spirit. And he sealed the sign with this shaking of the room in which they were sitting. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. Uh, I was in Ottawa at one time washing dishes when an earthquake kind of hit somewhere, I don't know, and I could remember all the cups shaking back and forth. I can remember my knees kind of giving away, you know. The place where they were was shaken. it was kind of a physical reminder that, yes, God, I've heard your prayer. I'm filling you with the Holy Spirit anew. This is a renewable experience. And the shaking kind of was their proof positive that, This prayer that they offered up was one that God heard and He was going to respond to. And so, what do we learn from this passage of the church in prayer? Well, number one, this sounds really obvious, but Christians pray. That's what they do. Uh, They speak with their Creator, they bring their needs to God, they look to Him for help, they look to Him for wisdom. Uh, He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. So Christians pray. It's part of what Christians do. Number two, uh, prayer anticipates God's presence. Because you don't pray if you don't expect that God is going to hear an answer. It's because you know that he's attentive to prayers when they're offered that we pray with confidence. We don't always have the best words in the world. Thank heavens the Holy Spirit helps us when we don't have words of our own. He prays on our behalf. But the bottom line is we pray with the expectation that God will respond. Thirdly, prayer is a declaration of dependence on God. Apart from him, we can do nothing. It's God who draws people and transforms hearts. It's God who makes miracles possible. It's God who guides us through scripture and the spirit. It's God who imparts abundant life to Christ's followers. And the list goes on and on. God is the source of all of these things. And then finally, prayer is an expression of obedience to God. Christians who pray are not only petitioning God to do things, but they're also demonstrating a willingness to do whatever God asks them to do. And so it has the early church in the face of this opposition says, okay, um, give us power and boldness, not to shrink from this opposition but to keep on preaching the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, Help us to have opportunities to share. Give us the courage, give us the words, give us the power we need to defend you when the time comes. Help us to be faithful to you, come what may. Uh, And God answers the prayer and and, uh, they experience it both internally through the infilling of the spirit and they experience it externally by the shaking of the space in which they lived. In other words, that was God saying, amen to their prayer, okay? And so that takes us now through that first episode of the early Jerusalem church that began with the healing of the lame man, that led to Peter's uh, sermon to the people who gathered to see what had happened to the lame man when they preached in the temple, that led to opposition from the Jewish leadership and gave Peter and John a chance to, again, uh, defend what had taken place, explain what had taken place, and uh, speak boldly on behalf of Jesus in front of the Jewish leadership and so there were other things that were taking place by the way at the same time all of these things were happening we don't know how the time frame is between the time the Holy Spirit was poured out and this particular event we don't know if it was months or years between these two but we know that lots of other things were happening but what Luke is saying here's an example this is what the early church was doing they were devoted to the apostles' prayer and teaching and to serving one another, so on and so forth. And, um, and an example of what took place, the kinds of things that take place the healing of the layman. And here's how the miracle took place, and here's how the preaching took place, and here's how the power of God was manifested. And so he's giving us a description of how the Holy Spirit came through in the middle of this real life circumstance. Now, next week when we get together, we are going to pick up the second episode. And it is probably one of the more troubling episodes in the scriptures. And it is uh, the episode about Ananias and Sapphira. And I don't know about you, but this one is kind of a hard one to get your head around. Okay? And so we're going to come back and talk about that next week. There's another summary paragraph that will set that up to start that episode. And then we'll get into talking about Ananias and Sapphira. And then uh, the following week, we'll look at chapter 6. And then after that, we'll kind of move into uh, life shared from there on in. So God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you for being a part of the teaching this evening.